Welcome back. This is Sheet Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dr. Rosie Bush here at UC Davis, and today I'm joined by Ryan Mahoney. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I always want to call people doctor, and doctor, I almost I called you Dr. Do- Ryan Mahoney. I'm not a doctor at all. <laughs> I, I do not have anywhere near the education to be considered even close to that. But uh, yeah. How are you today? I'm good. How was Thanksgiving? Oh my goodness. It was. Yeah. It felt like a year ago already. (laughs) Yeah. Y'all ready for Christmas? Throw out all the fall decorations and just go straight to winter. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, it was amazing. We had, we do it with my family, like my immediate family, my mom, my sisters and my sister and her family, and then my husband's family. So his parents and his brother's family. And so it's, 20 people it's not crazy but that's big for my house <laughs> but, still it's a lot of food i mean it's a lot of food. Uh, yeah yeah because that's still like i don't know what you need about 10 to 12 pounds of food yeah we did a 19 pound ch- turkey i almost said chicken <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it'd be a very big chicken <laughs> it'd be a huge chicken it was a big turkey yeah but yeah the, i think the magic of think which is I don't know. It's fun for me, but getting everything out at once and ready and yeah, having things warm all at that the same is time. Such a skill. It's so hard to do. And especially with my one oven and four burners. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing is like, I was thinking like that, you know, my mom's got a double oven and so it's yeah. a little easier because she can, and she's got a heat plate. That's one thing she bought. Great innovation was a little heat plate. So she called yeah. me, I was in charge of cooking the green beans and she told me to fire them before it, they were, everything was ready. She kind of anticipated the heating up of the turkey. And so she's like, go ahead and cook them now. And I cooked them. And then it was like, ah, we need like 20 more minutes. So I was able to put the beans on a heat plate and it was, we were totally fine. It was really good. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, but it's, I don't know. It's an art to do that. It's hard. Yeah. Especially yeah. smaller the kitchen. Yes. My mom right. has a double oven and I think six burners and it's a total mm. different story. <laughs> yeah. I have a single oven and uh, just four burners, but I also did not host Thanksgiving. So it was totally <laughs> fine. Easy for me. I sat on the couch and watched football. So it was yeah. fun. Yeah. 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 And then we had my sister's family stayed over and we made croissants because I thought it would be fun to do with them. <laughs> Forgetting my sister is gluten-free. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Everything I do has gluten in it. So <laughs> no, it's no fun. Yeah. But she can eat sourdough because I guess it's easier for people to digest. But anyway, so. Oh, yeah. that's weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. All the bacteria and the fermentation process makes sourdough easier for people who have gluten sensitivities. So, well, <laughs> that's a really exciting thing. See, God wants everybody to eat sourdough bread because it's mm-hmm. just that good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Make you allergic yeah. to everything except for sourdough bread. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so, are you? Did you guys get your tree yet? Or. <laughs> Uh, no, my daughter, my oldest daughter put up our, we have a fake tree and she put that up on like the first of November. 
Okay. And she was very excited and uh, got that put up. But I think probably this weekend we'll go grab a real tree, put it up. But we got decorations out. We don't have any Christmas lights up yet because I'm lazy. But um, yeah, I'm asking Brian to do that this year. Like, yeah. Trying to get the kids to ask him. So <laughs> it's not just me. But... Yeah, it's a lot of work to do that. I mean, I don't know. And then like, I don't know, you got to like hang it right. And then I always get annoyed at the, um, the, uh, the i'm really paranoid about overloading circuits and shorting things out i get super it's one of my i don't know idiosyncrasies or something where i always get very nervous about plugging too many things into a wall and um so like when i do christmas lights i got so many extension cords and like i'm you know i got rules on i'm only gonna do two lines at a time or maybe three on this one and anyway I, i got it all spread out and then i do all that and then i still blow out strands after i get stuff done and it's just <laughs> uh so annoying then i like spend all the time because i'm too cheap to buy new ones i try to like replace the fuses and then i go through every bulb <laughs> to replace the bulbs and it's just a giant exercise so yeah I, I don't know I'm, I'm always impressed i'm so impressed by those people that are able to decorate and handle those christmas lights you know like they really light up the whole house because it really you know one it takes some courage you know, and the and, and trust that you're not going to burn down your house. Yeah. And uh, then it's also really amazing that they're able to manage the electricity that way. You know, and I know they got like power efficient bulbs and different things like that. That you know, or that you know that there's ways to do it. But I'm not an electrician. I'm a sheep herder, and so when <laughs> I put up my Christmas lights, I tend to screw it up. So, but it's fun. Yeah, the angel on our tree was out, and it was out last year, and Brian fix the fuses in the little uh what do you call it plug yeah <laughs> and then but this year it was a bulb and we didn't have any more extra bulbs so he went to home depot found the bulb it was the wrong kind of bulb but it still at least completed the circuit so it, yeah. it it's not the right voltage it's lower so it doesn't shine as bright as the other ones but the rest of them are on so hey that's all right it's i call like that a 12 a year old angel so I'm yeah. <laughs> so you probably can't even, the bulbs are probably illegal in California now. I know. Yeah. You can't get that voltage anymore. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to go to Nevada. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to go get one of your sheep friends in Nevada to smuggle it into the state. Yeah. Now it's on public now as public record. You're going to get the, <laughs> going to get the incandescent light bulb police to your house now. All right. Let's talk about sheep. <laughs> 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 so oh, what are you funny. guys up to now you're done lambing you've been marking lambs what else do you have going on well most important thing i did is i planted all my onions and garlic in my yeah. garden because that's <laughs> what you gotta gotta get it in at thanksgiving that's my dad's rule and so i obediently planted my onions and garlic and um, they're bulbs very, that you plant right bulbs well he does yeah he does the shoots i do the I do the bulbs because I don't have the patience. Well, I well I'm not going to drive to Petaluma, because <laughs> he's retired and I'm not. So I'm going to go and find what I can on the routes that I'm traveling. I'm not going to go an hour out of my way to to get them. But anyway, he's he's got them and he's got his is. And I was really proud of mine. I got mine in and I you know I planted them all and all this stuff. And then he goes and he sends me a picture of his that are all planted and it's like everything he's got the plastic laid down for the weed control it's like five times the size of mine it's like i don't know some crazy like 350 onions or so it's like 
you know, wow. puts me to, puts me to shame. <laughs> so I'm like sitting there all puffing up my chest, all proud of myself. And then there, my dad sends me his photo of his onions. I'm like, oh man, what uh, does he do with 350 onions? Taste better. That's uh, nearly an onion a day. <laughs> gives a lot of them out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he shares. And it's good. Like I always, I was telling him too, like I, I really try to plant. I, I, I don't, I don't take his extras because I try to plant things he doesn't plant because he grows so much of what mm-hmm. he has. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't need any red onions. I don't need to grow red onions because my dad <laughs> grew 300 of them and I'm <laughs> not going to be able to eat any of it. No. So, so I grew, I think I got like some sweet yellow onions or something like that. And some fancy flavorful garlic just a little stronger variety he he likes growing the big elephant ones yeah i so i ordered shallots and garlic last spring when i was like i'm gonna start a a kitchen garden and have a kitchen kitchen garden and say you're gonna get the fall vegetables in the spring yeah (laughs) well i ordered them they didn't ship i just got them and i think you're supposed to plant them now yeah. <laughs> well, they came in the mail. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that idea. <laughs> I oh, don't have fun. planters, but so now they're sitting in my garage. I need to plant them somewhere, but yeah, that's all right. Yeah. You'll find a spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Well, you asked me what we're doing on the ranch, and I, um, I jokingly responded with what I wasn't doing on the ranch um, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I don't know. So, because we're busy. So, we finished marking Thanksgiving. We marked our last bunch of lambs. We still have a little bunch of, um, I think we have like 200 heavies left. So, I mean, it was incredible lambing how we just lambed everything all super quick. Um, and, uh, but we do have a handful left. So we'll mark those probably in three, four weeks. Um, we have our bummers. We have 91 of those bummers are all marked and should be one week from being weaned off the milk. And then we got another like, 80 or 90, something like that, that we're going to start the process next week. So, um, moving along there and, um, it sounds like your kind of typical rate of bummers. Yeah. That's kind of what we did last year. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing how, well, it's interesting. It's interesting to me how like we went from not doing anything on our bummers to raising like 150 plus you know, pretty much in one year, mm-hmm. but then now pushing that 150 to a bigger number is really challenging. And part of it's in just the, I think it's the time, it the time it takes to like the, the day-to-day attention on that many animals for such a long period of time. I mean, we wean, wean, we try to wean them early, but even just like, there's so many little things with, like we were, um, we're weaning this bunch and I went out there and they'd put the buckets out, the short milk, and then they, but they were all bawling and yelling and they're in a big field, but the grass isn't really growing good yet. And they don't really know how to eat the grass off the ground. They're feeding alfalfa. And so like I had to switch it to where they fed the alfalfa first and then come back and fed the milk later so that they were, weren't as hungry. But it's like these little changes because that's correct for the day I was out there, but two weeks ago it wasn't correct. They needed to do the milk first and then the alfalfa and it's there's so many like little day to day things that are different. And every time I go out there, I see something. I see, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we need to bring them in and you know, give antibiotics to a third of them. Or we got this problems. Looks like it's kind of going through. And they're so sensitive and they change day to day. And so, kind of staying on top of that many is is a challenge. 
mm-hmm. for the yeah. entire time. Um, and so it's really hard. I don't know why it's just hard to push. And so far it's been hard to push beyond that number. And I think it's tied to like just the size of our facility and our, our human capacity to make that much milk. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so do your, anyway, do your guys notice those changes that you said when you go out there you notice things do your guys notice them and kind of tell you things look a little different mm. or not really um depends on the guy yeah 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 it depends on the guy it's one of those bad jobs you know and so people don't like doing it so a lot of times the guys that would notice it don't do that job because Man, it's they... the best job i want to like <laughs> that's yeah, my retirement but, uh, plan <laughs> yeah but i also think it's like they they recognize that it once they step into it, it's going to be a full day's worth of work to yeah. work through it, and so they kind of just—I mean, I mean, this sounds bad. It it's sounds babies, bad. they need you. <laughs> I know, and 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 we definitely put the time into them. I mean, I mean, yeah. and I'm not disparaging the guy that that's in charge of them at all, but um, like when you're in there, just making that much milk, doing the same routine every day, it's challenging, and um, because you do have to kind of move beyond the job when you're handling those babies. Um, yeah. it's just, it's just a challenge. I mean, I'd have, I have the same struggle too. I go through 40 days of lamb and working, you know, seven days straight all the way through. And by the end of it, I mean, I, you go to that barn and you're like, Oh man, I got to make 40 gallons of milk today. Like, <laughs> like this is not exciting at all. And then I got two more months to look forward to making that much milk. So yeah. it's kind of a and cleaning everything and it's got to be validating though, when you see the difference that it, Oh, makes. I love it. Yeah. 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 But that's, and that's where you got to find the reward, but it's, it's still hard. Like it's, that's yeah. what makes, that's what makes farming hard is that everyday monotonous yeah. job. It's not the, you know, you have the picture of the farmer who's covered in dirt because of a hard day's work, but it's that that monotonous work day after day after day after day it's that dairyman that goes out and milks his cow every day that's that's what makes farming hard because you have to milk that cow like you get covid you have to milk that cow <laughs> like it just you know it's that it's that kind of a business and um that's what really makes it hard so yeah yeah no i remember gosh i can't well and it was i don't know there's a lot of times where you things happen and you're still you're still raising those animals you're doing what they have to do and it's even if you know for whatever reason it's not you can't get paid for it like if your bulk tank is full or whatever you're still you still have to take care of those animals even if yeah that milk isn't going into the food supply yeah if you have to dump it down the drain you still have to get it out of the cow Yeah. yeah yeah no matter what yeah yeah cool yeah so, okay. And then so that's what's <laughs> happening there. And then cat, we're branding cattle. So we kind of shift, we try the goals always, we hardly hit our goal, but we always try to be done marking lambs by Thanksgiving and then brand one set of calves before Thanksgiving. And then from Thanksgiving to really February, it's branding cattle, every opportunity you get, you get because the, and that's kind of why we tightened up our window was our lambing window because we were putting so much time into lambing sheep it was taking away from us being able to brand our cattle mm-hmm. um quick enough because we'd have you know three to four hours of work every morning from in november and december and january and then you're trying to brand cattle but you can only brand on good weather days mm-hmm. 
And so you get rain in the winter and it's, it's always was it been a challenge. So. And when you're branding, you're, are you, how, are you doing any vaccines or castrating? Uh, yeah. Yes, we do. Um, sorry, there's, if you can hear listeners, there's a video <laughs> sale going on right now and I'm keeping my eyes and there's a, a lot of some really nice looking cattle and uh, they're going for a pretty cheap price. And so I think we might try to buy these. Let's see. <laughs> Let me do a little math, quick math here. Ah, uh, no, they're a little pricey. They're good ones. Anyway, they're about 10 <laughs> cents over my budget. Anyway, sorry, back to business. So branding <laughs> cattle. So we uh, vaccinate, we give a, um, we call it a once PMH or a internasal vaccine by Merck. Uh, and then we also give BVD and all that. So they get their, I think what do they call that? Five-way is kind of a broad spectrum viral pneumonia vaccine. Then we give them a, a eight-way, which is going to cover your clostridials. And then uh, usually we'll work a tetanus into that um, clostridial vaccine. So there's different ones. Some will have tetanus, some won't. We um, will jump, we in our business will jump brands depending on pricing between the different vaccines so we want coverage of all of the 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 whatever you call it the diseases yeah. but we also you know most most of the large companies make comprehensive vaccines in all arenas and so we kind of mix and match and we usually change that up every two years depending I think that's on a good point though i've had clients come in with calves with tetanus that were like well we gave it a seven way or an eight way but they don't all have tetanus in them it's important no. to look and make sure that they actually have what you're wanting to cover yeah and you could do things too so like tetanus vaccines if you're going to band the steers you absolutely need a tetanus vaccine if you're going to knife cut them you don't you can get away with it. You're veterinarian you're shaking your head because yes you know from anytime we do a surgery yeah because you have it's the because you have a wound part, and but... it's the healing process but the knife cut the knife cut wound heals so much faster than the band that when you look at occurrences we have way more problems with bands than we ever have with knife cuts that doesn't mean we omit it like i said we include it but there you got to understand your risks in the whole process and then get the vaccination program that kind of matches that it's yes, kind of what we try but to But a tetanus vaccine is doesn't add a lot of cost to your clostridial vaccine program and like when we're doing surgery we're using sterile instruments and we still vaccinate we booster tetanus mm -hmm. at those time points and when you're knife cutting a castration it's nowhere near sterile so there's still risk with knife cutting castrations uh, you'll see fewer cases but you'll still see cases yeah i i agree 100 <laughs> percent. i'm just saying like your risk is so much different with the i guess when you have a band my main point is when you band you have to have tetanus like no matter what mm -hmm. you can kind of work in the gray a little bit on other areas i'm not recommending it but <laughs> There's, um, you know, definitely, definitely, uh, definitely with the bands, it just takes a long time to heal. Yeah. Um, so, and then we do a dewormer as well, usually an injectable. Um, so let me think. And then, um, we have different programs. So like we'll have, uh, <clears throat> uh, 
NHTC for European. They have so many programs now for cattle. It's crazy. They have a new one called VegFed, which is like certified <laughs> that you feed only um, veg, like grass plant. and stuff. And literally, <laughs> oh, it's that, just grass or it's plants? No, plants. So like it's feedlot. It's <laughs> it's literally ninety nine percent. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. There's some tallow and some feed rations and some TMRs, but. Like that's literally the majority of all cattle sold in the U.S. But for a Saudi Arabian export for this one market, they need this veg fed certification. So then you got to pay some company to come out and verify that your veg is fed. Anyway, it's like there's so much. But anyway, NHTC is non-hormone treated. We do that. We do agent source, uh, which allows for export into like Japan and some of those countries like that that require under a certain age, especially on our Wagyu cattle because they finish at a later age. The, some of those age requirements are really important to have sourced um, your agent source on that. Um, a lot of your commercial Angus cattle, you don't need to really worry about it because they're almost all under that. But the, the the programs do pay a lot of pay more money because the um, the uh, your your grocery stores and retailers and stuff have have paid a premium because there's less supply of what they're selling. So. Because they were, yeah, anyway, it's not because there's not cattle that qualify. It's because there's a lack of call cattle that have the paperwork that shows they qualified. Um, anyway, so yeah, I don't know. That's it. Then we brand, put a brand. But anyway, I was saying on the NHTC, so our Wagus are NHTC free, but on our Angus cattle, we do use an implant on our steers only. Okay. So, and it's a, it's a estrogen implant. So. Okay. And your brand is a hot brand? Hot brand, yep. Is it? E-bar oh. on the right hip. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool. And are you feeding lambs at the moment? Uh, not many. We lower our inventories for the winter because you get a lot of rain. Mm -hmm. And then corn's got so expensive that um, we got this inverse market right now where um, your cost of gain is substantially higher than the fat lamb price. And so until those merge back together, it's, you know, it really, the only reason you're going to feed lambs is to pick up yield, um, you know, or you have no feed, no options. So you, you're going to, you want to really limit your amount of feed you're putting into a lamb because it's just you know, every pound you put on, essentially you lose money unless you're, if you would have sent them to town, they yield it like, it's like pasture, if they're thinned out pasture lambs, they'll yield it like 35%. And feedlot lambs pretty much yield 48 to 50%. So they take the hot dress carcass weight times two. That's your, and you take that weight divided by your live weight, and that's the yield. So you're, if you're 35% yield, you would be your, your live, your pay weight, which is double the hot dressed, is 70% of the live weight. So we have our, Irrigated pasture, you sell down the inventories going into the winter, and then you have your carryover inventory, and you have to stock that pasture um, so that way you're fully to overstocked on April 15th because that's when it really explodes and you almost can't have enough livestock on the pasture. If you don't have the right stocking rates, your pasture will, uh, you grow too much on our ground, or you grow too much ryegrass, the ryegrass then matures and falls down and you end up cutting your feed production by about almost half for the summer and fall because that 
grass lays on top of where that clover would grow and you have, you know, 50% of the clover you normally would have if you have it grazed off properly in the spring. And so wintertime is sourcing livestock over the entire winter, ramping up into that real high grass peak demand on April 15th to May 1st. And so that's kind of, that's what we're doing. So that's why I'm watching this auction right now, because these are cattle that are going to come in December. And so I've uh, also, we also, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I've also seen cattle get listeriosis from grazing pastures that grew too long, fell over, and then the under, whatever was underneath fermented basically. And huh. they got listeria. Yeah. It's like that's silage. interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> These were just pasture cattle. And one of them, I was like, that's listeriosis. And they treated it and she, it, he got better, but it was, yeah. That's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Another reason to make sure you have good stocking. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Cause like it's so much of our season is built off of how we stock in the spring. Like it's, it's, it's so critical to get that stocking rate proper it's really 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 challenging um i missed that other lot too i only got yeah it only went for two bucks so i was 10 cents off of that one but um <laughs> anyway i yeah you know it's yeah it's interesting because the and when we buy cattle and sheep this time of year it kind of is opportunistic and so we really look at the i mean you just want to look at the best the highest and best use of that clover but then get animals sourced to be able to graze it off. Cause a lot of people, the easy way to do it is to take a hay cutting in the spring. You take a hay cutting on May 1st mm -hmm. and then you're kind of cheating cause you're taking that top off. But then when you have an animal graze that pasture, they do such a better job of harvesting the plant and allowing for the other plants to flourish. So you're, it, whereas that swather, it's going to go at a level and just you know, mow everything at that one level and that's it. And then you have your windrow damaged area, you're running vehicles over the tops of it. So you have a lot of issues with that. And the other problem too, is when you're rotating animals through, you're able to keep your moisture consistent. Whereas when you run your hay, you throw down your hay, you can't run water until the hay's up. And so if you have, it's just, you run into challenges there. So we always, with, and once you lose your soil moisture, it takes like five times as much water to get it back. It's really hard to get that moisture back into the ground. So, excuse me, getting that stocking rate right is is really important. So that's anyway, cool. so that so that's what we're doing. And then we're also, winter is kind of our budgeting and forecasting plan. So we're kind of getting prepared for our annual meeting. It sounds official. It's me and John and Justin <laughs> going to New Orleans to the cattle convention and finding a bar and talking about what we're going to do. But um Anyway, anyway, normally we do ASI, but it's in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, we're both going to be spending too much time there. So we're going to go to New Orleans later to the Cattlemen's Convention. I've never been there, so oh, that's but fun. NCBA, so it'll yeah, be good. I, I took my boards, my boards exam in New Orleans, so it was a great place to be done with a test. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fun. That's it's cool. Place, yeah, yeah, very cool. And so, yeah, you, that's do what we're up to. <laughs> do you take lambs to Imperial or because last year you had lambs down there? But yeah, we've done it for a few years, but we didn't, we didn't this year. So, the, I mean, we've talked about the volatility in the markets. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, we lost a lot of money this year in the, in the lamb thing. Um, 
you know, I, I, I don't really want to get into the reasons why it's not super productive, but, um, because of that, it's put us in a position where we don't want to take a large position on ranged lambs that are going to be held for six months based on projections to sell in the future and have those lamb sales cover up the lambs we will have to market uh, in the spring from our raised inventory and then other California spring lambs. So we're in an inventory, like, and so to back that up, we're in an Im- this is just how we analyzed it. We're in an inventory glut. There's too many sheep around. And so the longer we can postpone owning an animal and where we can source and sell that animal on a tighter window. So we want to be able to sell that animal as you know close to the purchase date as possible. So that way we don't get stuck with too much time in between those two, the the purchase and the sale point. And you know, we're going to give up some opportunity because there's going to be cheap animals sold because there's no demand from people like me and other buyers that are looking at the same thing. Um, but you don't have that risk. You're not tying up your capital. Interest rates are definitely affecting feeder feeder buyers. And when you go from borrowing money at 3% to borrowing money at 7 it it it's a huge factor on your bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it can take you from 10,000 a month to 20,000 a month in costs. And that, that can get expensive really quick. Even if you make money on the lambs, you can give it all back to the bank if you're borrowing money. Um, and so it's, yeah, so we're just, so we didn't send anything to Imperial Valley this year. Um, a lot of the feeders down there were pretty negative on the market and didn't even really want to take lambs, especially cause the hay price was so high, like crazy high. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at, I don't know, three, $400 a ton on hay. So they're trying to get extra cuttings or. Yeah. Extra cuttings and just, you know, not dealing with the sheep because yeah. you have to give up feed through the sheep. And when the sheep, you know, there is a balance there when hay's at a moderate, moderate price, the sheep are a good value and they do a lot of good for the field. But when it gets to another point and the spread is so different, it's crazy. And just like I was saying, like on the corn, cost of gains in the feedlot are exceeding the the feed like the the live price so i don't know our cost of gains are anywhere from a dollar 50 to a dollar 80 cost of gain so for one pound of gain it costs a dollar 50 to a dollar 80 to put it on in uh the but the fat price is sitting at was it was sitting at a dollar so every pound you put on in the feedlot you were paying 50 cents to get it for 80 cents to get it yeah. And so it just it costs so much money to to do that that it's it's non-sustainable. And really the cost of gains down there in the valley, you know, you're looking at you know, your good performing lambs would be under a dollar, but your poor performing lambs would be a dollar ten, dollar twenty. So if you're looking at like a 90 cent fat market or a dollar fat market, you know, you're once again your your gains, the cost of the gains are exceeding the market, which means that you need to value you need to buy them at a lower price in order to have them make sense. And where your, where your, um, your sales price is going to be in the spring and you're buying them in the fall, that's a six month window that you have to hope the market corrects by then. And so it's a, it's a lot of risk is, mm-hmm. is what it comes down to. It's just a lot of risk, not to say it doesn't happen. And there's people with positions that, that are going to make a lot of money. And there's people with positions that aren't going to make any, and there's a lot of people in between. And so it's kind of a, you know, we bought 
Last year, I think we bought like 20,000 lambs or something like that in the fall. This year we bought 1,500. And so we just, we pulled way back because the risk involved in that. And, you know, there's a lot of arguments on what's happening to the inventory. Um, You got, I I don't know the, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but um, there's a lot of lambs that are, I don't know what you call it. I, I, I'd call it kind of unaccounted for where they're retained owner that's retained ownership by the producer. They're in a non-traditional channel. There's a lot of ones that went to ethnic slaughter. There's a lot of ones that got sold to the neighbors off the mountain. There's a lot of, um, lamb retention that maybe wouldn't have happened on the higher meat prices. There's that coal use coal use are worth, almost the same as fat lambs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, you take a, you take a nice fine wool weather and age it out, uh, you know, 18 months and shear it with a real nice fleece of wool and then sell it in the coal you market. And it's as good or better money than if you would have sold it as a feeder animal. That's so there, there's a lot of really weird things going on in the market right now. And a lot of unaccounted for lambs. And, and so it's, there's a lot of nerve in the market because nobody knows how those lambs are going to work their way through the production chain. Like your lambs on feed in Colorado, everybody kind of knows where they're going to go. They're going to go to the packers around there and it's going to, you know, it's going to go to Texas. It's going to go to Denver or Minnesota, you know, it's going to, we know where those are going to go, but this big number of unknown animals that are kind of just unaccounted for because they don't fit into the traditional you know, you used to be able to go count Imperial Valley, count Colorado feedlot, count Oregon grass, and be able to account for most of the fall lamb. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. Yeah. So it's, it makes for a lot of risk. So, yeah. but a lot of opportunity. I mean, a lot of money's made in down markets. So, um, just kind of got to weigh your risk and understand where you're at and go from there, which is why it's important that me and John and Justin go to New Orleans and really think about these things. <laughs> A good long think about it. Uh, that's good. That's very cool. Man, yeah. that's so interesting. It's so, and I know, I don't know, my world around sheep production is so different. I mean, I learned, this is, <laughs> this is basically the topic for today. I just learned so much from like hearing you and Dan talk about the, just, I don't know, the business side, the pasture side. It's amazing how much goes into it. And it was, I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about those life cycle assessments, kind of looking at the, oh, what do they call it? Eco efficiency of different products and how they're made and how they impact environment. And or basically, I think they're looking at carbon emissions from farm to fork sort of thing. But they're so... They're important, and at least it's a measure that you can kind of compare commodities. But they're so limited. They don't take in to account all the flexibility or like, you know, like what you're saying, year to year, it is so drastically different or can be. And how it is important to be able to have slower growing animals or, you know, like, I don't know. Well, Whereas- I think that's that's the beauty. I mean, so... I don't know how to say it right, but if you can measure everything, put it in a box, map it out and say, this is exactly what's going to happen every single year, 
that's essentially a vertically integrated, all confined system. Mm -hmm. And by the nature of sheep production and its diversity, and I think you can make the same argument for beef cattle or goats, but mainly ruminants, mm -hmm. they, they need, they have a, they have an, they have a intimate relationship with nature and biology and grass. And because of that, you can't control grass. You know, we can, we can talk about global warming. We can talk about climate change. We can talk about the effects it's going to have on things, but pretty much the unanimous, um, opinion is, is that it's, um, unpredictable, right? It's uncontrollable. You can influence it for the better or the worse. And that's where people get caught up politically is whether that's in existence. But really when you step back, it's, you can't control that year to year. We can't control year to year rainfall in California, you know, and a lot of these measurements and systems are, are built on the idea of how can we control it all? Well, the only way you control it all is lock them up and put them all in a climate controlled area where you're controlling everything from the weather to the feed. And I'm not saying that's bad. Uh, it's worked really well in, in like some poultry production and stuff like that. But when it comes to ruminants, it's just so challenging because there's such a, there's such a, there's such a tie to grass and, and, it's, um, <laughs> I think it's one of the, the blessings of, you know, cattle and sheep ranching is that no matter what kind of system you put together, growing grass in your backyard and feeding it off with a cow is going to be cheaper than locking it up and bringing feed to it. So like, no matter, like there's, it's going to be impossible to get rid of all grass, like grazing. You just can't do it. Cause it's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to rain. And there's going to be some grass and you can feed it off through an animal and that's going to be cheap. But, and well, I guess what kind of drives me nuts with these life cycles, and I, I totally, like I said, there's value in these assessments, but. Oh, for sure. It, it just. It's an assessment, not a solution. And a lot of times the assessments no, get it, projected as a, this is a solution, how it all needs yeah, to be. Like, and it's okay, like, no, that's ruminants just are bad. So, you know, like don't, and that's like, which is how, like when you compare, when these life cycle assessments compare ruminants to monogastric species like birds and pigs, they don't, they look different <laughs> and, but it doesn't take into account the soil benefits or, you know, fire fuel reduction, like all those other ecosystem benefits that happen through grazing or even, you know, like you have people grazing orchards, so they're not mowing with fossil fuel mowers or things like that tractors yeah. like it just it doesn't take into it doesn't take any of that into account does it guarantee those things are happening in every system no but i don't know it'll i think it's interesting so last year at asi we had well, dr frank that's kind of when like science turns into marketing like when they start using science to market products i think that's where it gets all corrupted because if you know like the life cycle analysis is, it's good. It's good information. It's interesting to learn. And it's a piece of information that you can use to change how you do things. Mm -hmm. But it's not like when it, when that, when that one study gets held up and says, this is why this needs to happen. That's when it gets corrupted because you're, you're no longer engaged in like science. You're now engaged in polit politics and yeah. you're not using that information to make 
changes on your place or do this or that. It's now, this is why a consumer needs to buy this product. This is why this product is bad and a consumer needs to not buy it. And that's where it gets messed up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that's one you're, of the You're things. on a line with MitLearner. Was, you are going to mention MitLearner? Oh, stock. yeah. I was just, because so last year at ASI, he was the keynote speaker. And that's one of the things that I think drives him nuts is he does a lot of this research to help you know, like he said, a lot of the research is funded by industry because no one else is going to pay for it. And industry is looking for places that they can make improvements, right? Where can we start making change to help with carbon drawdown or re reduce emissions or however you want to look at it? That's why that research is done, because if you can identify some of the key points that we can work on, then great. And then... But what it does is, like you said, it gives people a piece of paper to wave around and say, this is the problem. This is why ag is a problem. And it's like they're missing the the elephant in the room, which is, you know, all of these other uses for fossil fuels and things like that. And I think that's what drives him nuts is his work gets thrown around like, OK, not as being a stepping stone to finding solutions, but it gets you know, thrown in front of to mask these big problems that also need to be worked on. Not that we, you know, should not have but, transportation or things like that, but there are, there's certainly places where we could make some big improvements. Well, so much of science is inquiry and discovery, right? You're, you're discovering and you're inquiring and you're learning and you're digging into the whys. And when you have a white paper come out, uh, the best white paper offers a explanation, but then also opens a door to more questions. Right. And so like yeah. the, I, it was so often when it comes to, and I think that's, that's kind of why I keep tying this back to marketing. I feel like um, the, the reaction now is when that white paper comes out, it's see, see, this is the, this is it. This is it. This is what we know now. And this is the truth and everything is based off of this. And so anything in conflict is canceled. And it's like, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's disingenuous to what that process is. And I think as farmers and ranchers, especially ranchers, grass ranchers, especially you, the first thing you learn after a couple of years dealing with growing grass is that, you know, every year is different. Every, you know, things evolve, right? Things change. The organisms change. Your um, parasites change. The, their resistance changes and you have to change with them. You have to rotate your wormers. You have to change your grazing patterns. You have to supplement one year. You have to supplement something else another year. You have to you have a vitamin A problem this year. You have a copper problem this year. I mean, it's it's such a constant uh, journey. It's like, you know, you're constantly working on this thing. And you, you, the year you have it right, it's different the next year and you're wrong again. So it's like, I don't know, you, you got to that. I think it's kind of natural for us to say, yeah, that, you know, that makes sense. And it's probably, you know, there's probably a lot of really good truth in there, but you kind of missing the point that it could probably going to change tomorrow. <laughs> and that's, I don't know. I think it's, but you know, when you have so much money being made off of these brands and products and things it you know, that's what you want. You want to set your brand apart. You want to give everybody a reason why they need to buy it. You need to create an emotional tie with the consumer to develop brand loyalty. You got to, 
I mean, it's, it's marketing one-on-one and I, I get it and I respect it and understand it, but I, yeah, I keep going back to, I think there is some destruct destructiveness to that at some yeah. point too, where you, you gotta, I don't know, the real side of farming and ranching gets kind of dismissed, but I don't know. Yeah. We talked about that last time. I yes. <laughs> well, yeah, Dr. Kim Stackhouse Lawson is going to be the speaker this year at ASI and she, oh gosh, she's in, she's at Colorado State University. She's doing, I can't remember what the department, she's in animal science, but she's doing sustainability work. So it'll be interesting to see what she talks about and how it's different from what we heard last year. Yeah. And you're going to ASI. Mm-hmm. And when is it? Do you remember when it is? January 16th or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember either. It's in the end of January. I know that. And uh, yeah. I'll be there for the wool meetings. And then I'm taking off on Saturday morning, I think. And uh, yeah, I've, I think I'm there all week, 16th yeah. to the 21st. Yep. Yeah. Lots of meetings, but yeah. Yeah. Are you talking cool. at any of them? Yes, we are talking together. Don't forget. Oh, that. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Well, I will prepare the presentation, and then I get to ask you questions. So. Yeah, that's how I thrive. I I, I, I like to answer <laughs> questions. I don't like. I'll to be give more prepared for that than. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's good. And then Dan, he's going to make it for a few days. I think he'll be there. Yeah. At the same. So when we have our talk, I think it's Thursday. It's at the perk meeting and he is moderating a panel at the perk meeting yeah. as well. Are yeah. we going to have time to record, you think, or is his? Absolutely. Get, I don't yeah. <laughs> but so he says he comes in Wednesday and leaves Thursday. So he's only there for a hot second. But yeah, yeah. I always like those meetings when we're able to sit down and record Adam. That's always kind of fun. Yeah, so. it is fun. Yeah. <laughs> People yeah. are like staring, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. You know, hopefully we'll have a fan club there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I guess that's all I got for today. I don't, well, you're the one asking questions. You got any more questions or is that it? No. <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. I don't know. I just kind <laughs> of, I know it was kind of related to what we talked Well, you made it related to what we talked about last time, but I was just, I thought it would be interesting to talk about the life cycle assessments. And I think they are important, but I do think it's important to understand their limitations. And like you said, they're not, they aren't the solution. They're helping to identify and, or yeah. help us to ask the right questions and identify yeah. And I think, areas. I think a lot of that science is new to like, it's new to me and I think it's new to a lot of farmers and because of the politicization of a lot of that stuff, it's easily rejected. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think there's a lot we can learn about our own farms in it. If you know, to, like there's a lot of really good information on how we can improve things. There's a lot of good information on what we're doing right in there. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of questions to be asked by a lot of them, but it, you know, I think, you know, I think I'd go ahead. For the researchers that are doing it there, I mean, the sheep industry is so different from, you know, traditional beef industry where they're 
were a lot of questions asked of the folks that were presenting their work and they're like, yeah, we, it's just, it's so, you know, with co-species grazing, how do you consider that? How do you, you know, like you can have two species on the same amount of pasture and use that even more effectively than with one species. So how do you consider that? Where does wool fit into this picture? And so it's, and you know, it's, it's, you can't just copy and paste what they've done in other industries because it is so different. And that's, and it, it also shows that maybe these other industries just didn't consider some of those things. And so, you know, even with the science, when we're trying to make things that are replicable, that you can compare across industries, it is still so new. And we're, it's important for all of us as researchers and engaged with the process to realize that there isn't a gold standard. It's constantly developing and, and improving. And yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's dangerous to dismiss it because it's important mm-hmm. to try to, but I, I do think I keep going back to, I, I think that there's always going to be an innate struggle to map out the effect because the thing being measured is constantly changing. Exactly. And so, yeah, like, which is why you're, just, you know, asking you about what you guys are doing this year and how different that is from last year is so important to that. This whole story, it is so different. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's important incredibly that different. It's different because it's helping you stay in the business. Well, and <laughs> not just you that, did it's... exactly what you did last year. If you bought twenty thousand lambs like you did last year be totally different that right and that's part of sustainability Uh like you said well in the in like our decisions are made are you know we have economic i spent a lot of time talking about economic considerations and market evaluation and risk and all that stuff but ultimately we are blessed with a pasture and we have to maintain that pasture and our decisions are based off of how to best utilize that pasture not just for the current year but for all years and so it's like it sources back to that like the drastic differences are because of um the differences we've had i mean really a lot of it's the differences we've had in in years just straight rainfall Mm -hmm. in the last five years have been so erratic um our rains are coming differently typically we'd have like more rain but less rains per day we're having heavier rains and then dry spells which is um you know, it's good. It's really good in some areas. It's really bad in other areas. Like it just mm-hmm. affects, but it's different. And so, you know, how do you, yeah, I mean, you, you know, I, I think there's such a, I, I, I get worried that the research and the discussions and the arguments on whether it's good or bad, get caught it caught up in that um, attempt to, um, measure it all into one system, but you, you just, you, you got to constantly recognize that it's impossible to, you, <laughs> it's impossible to capture it all because it's changing so constantly. And, and there's the only, so if, many factors. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do, if you do measure it all, it's because you've confined and controlled it all. Like you've actually done what they don't want us to do, which right? is what researchers <laughs> love. <laughs> Because it's easy because you can then measure, you can measure everything. And so, and I like, but that's the, you know, that's kind of the drive you're working against. And it's just important to have that, to continue to learn and improve because we can make great informed decisions. I mean, we've, 
we've changed our outlook on how to apply compost on our rangelands much differently than we did four or five years ago based on that kind of science. Mm-hmm. So it's really good stuff. Our cover crop system, like the, the cover crop mix that we have was an evolution through that. Um, it, you know, so there's good stuff we can glean from it, but you know, I feel like so often like the drive always goes to, here's our big project. Now we need a result. We have to put it all on a paper. And so I, I remember helping him. There was a, it was a master's student was doing her project on measuring the effect of the sheep industry. Mm-hmm. And like, I think I told her at one point, I was like, you just got to pick something and measure it and go. Like you have to just, you can't account for all the variables. You just have to take your best guess and go with it. And that's kind of what had to happen on that page. So when you actually have that final measured result, it's because somebody somewhere said, all right, this is the average and just mm-hmm. stuck it in there. Yeah. And so you got to have that in the back of your mind when you're interpreting that information that, you know, it, it's, it's really diverse. But that's <laughs> it. That's exactly it. I was talking to someone about this last week. I gave a guest lecture in animal science and we were just chatting afterwards and I was saying how challenging it is for me to design a project because it, I get hung up on all those variabilities and like, you know, uh, you know, just like all the reasons why what I'm doing may not represent what I actually want it to represent. And I'm like, but so many research, just go in, do it, measure it. And, but you have in, you know, when you're presenting that information, you have to know where the limitations are and present it that way. You know, like this only applies to this exact situation that it was measured in but we could potentially apply it in other ways, knowing that these are the limitations of doing that. And yeah, I need to figure out how to stop getting hung up on, you know, not like you said, just pick it, (laughs) do it, but still understand those limitations. I'm still at that level. (laughs) I think that's really, it's good that you're still there because I think a lot of research is done past that where yeah. they then they just ignore the limitations and pursue the research in a fixed and then they present it like this is the answer <laughs> this is the answer because the answer is yeah i mean and yeah. and you got like you got to get funding for research and all and it's all tied to measurable measurables uh, i mean it's all it's kind of a a wheel but i think it's just it's important to know that when you get that stuff to have that in the back of your head that you know it's you know I don't yeah, know. <laughs> recently I've I've been I'm obviously an extension. And so recently I was planning a project and they asked, Well, what are you gonna do for extension with this project? I'm like, Oh, this is just the very beginning. I'm not gonna have findings that I can teach ranchers from this one project. This is we're gonna generate more questions that will, you know, help with ongoing research, but I'm not gonna have we're not gonna have workshops after this one project. And it's hard to explain that to folks because it's like, well won't you have some findings? And it's like, well we can teach people how to do some things, but it's not gonna be like the answers that we find. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. All right, I got another lot of cattle I got to pay attention to, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna cut this off. But uh, it was super fun. I love the topic. I love the banter that rambles the best because that's how my brain works. So thank you so much. This is sheep stuff you should know. We'll see you next time. <laughs>